Welcome to the Wolf Admin Podcast. Today, I had a discussion with Dr. David Cabin, the Vision Source Director of Managed Care Initiatives for the Northeast. David has a long history in our profession of moving the ball forward so patients have access to the breadth of services we provide. We discussed the evolution of the Vision Source and Snepton relationship and how optometry evolves to play a larger role in demonstrable, high quality, cost efficient healthcare. David is a really interesting person to listen to. Please enjoy our conversation. And as always, if you want to get the most current episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review. Please enjoy. What, I, what my real goal is, is that I think there's so many people that I've encountered from our profession that have done so many things that, that individual docs like myself can think about and use so that we can you know, better our practices and better our communities. Sure. And so yeah. that's really my, my whole thought was that, you know, from a scope of practice standpoint, when I've, you know, that's one of my biggest passions, as you know, I think there's all these stories that I've learned from these guys that I've been able to rub shoulders with that I just hope that the next generation of people get to hear. And I'm learning sure. the same thing from, you know, all the stuff we're doing with Vision Source. I'm learning the same things are going on just in a different level. Like, so the the healthcare stuff that that Vision Source has been doing, and you really kind of were pivotal um, in in setting that up. It yes, has has kind of made me think. Well, there's all these people that that we just don't know about, and wouldn't mm-hmm. it be great to talk to them? And so that's really the whole point of our discussion tonight. I'm hoping is that we we get, can kind of uncover that whole process. So sure. I guess um, sounds exciting. Awesome to be part of it. Awesome. Well, thanks for thanks for being a part of it, David. I uh, well, I guess I'll start and just kind of ask you in to sort of give a an overview of how you found um, Snepton. How how did you how did that whole evolution occur um, by talking to different people? Can you give me an overview of that? Sure. It, it's 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 funny how things happen in life, and um, it's all about, uh, as they say, not what you know, but who you know. So. Uh, oh, it's got to be uh, three years now or, or more. You know, I'm the director of managed care initiatives for the Northeast for Vision Force. And one of our administrators at the time was a Dr. Brian Wadman, uh, who since uh, has, has retired. Uh, and uh, he and Brian, Br- Dr. Brian Thamel as well are in Massachusetts. So one did, uh, I think, the eastern part of the state and one did the western part. And... Um, Basically, Dr. Wadman, when we were working on the managed care initiative, which we still are working on, establishing collaborative relationships with uh, ACOs, physician networks, and vision source docs, delivering eye care services, whether it be diabetic uh, eye exam, uh, uh, eye exams for their subscribers, or other things, as, as has developed now over the years that we've been doing it. Um, Dr. Wadman happens to happen to be at a, at a meeting and somehow met through the University of Massachusetts, which was a just uh, in its infancy in terms of a collaboration between Vision Source uh, Massachusetts, uh, met some people from UMass uh, who were about to start on this uh, MACRA-MIPS uh, TCPI, Transforming Clinical Practice Initiative, and he got talking to them about Vision Source. And they said, you know, we can sign optometrists up. You're part of the target audience for uh, CMS, and you're included in this MACRA-MIPS TCPI thing. So essentially, we jumped on that opportunity, and um, 
Paul Williams asked me to take the lead on it. Dr. Paul Williams, the CMO for Vision Source, mm-hmm. being being that it was in my backyard. I, you know, I live about an hour away from Boston, southern New Hampshire. So um, I got talking to them. Mostly it was over the phone, not uh, uh, in person. And suddenly I got invited to go to um, uh, the CMS annual uh, convention, I guess we'd call it. Uh, meeting, gathering, whatever, where all the real thought leaders in healthcare uh, gather, and it was in Baltimore, um, and they asked if I would go as a clinical representative of a large group that Sneppen was starting to build a relationship with. So Paul said, are you willing to go, Dave? I said, well, I'll, you know, I'm willing to try anything. <laughs> I said, I don't know what the heck this is going to be about, but sure. So pack my bags and hadn't met a lot of these people, flew down to uh, to Baltimore, and uh, I was the only, I think, optometrist hmm. among thousands of people at this conference. And uh, Dr. David Polikoff is uh, very knowledgeable, a wonderful internist at, at uh, UMass Medical um, in their uh, pol- one of their policy departments and a prolific writer in the area of public um, of, uh, uh, population health management and so forth. So we struck up a relationship, and uh, before you know it, um, here I was, kind of in the in the catbird seat and <laughs> learning as I went in a new area that we were all pioneering, not just optometry, everybody. Mm-hmm. And and uh, the macro MIPS was a very small part of it. What actually was the bigger part was the transforming clinical practice initiative. And, and that's basically an attempt by CMS to save money because I was blown away because I went to another conference and I didn't realize, but in 2017, $3.5 trillion was spent on health hmm. That's $3.5 trillion with a T in 2017. And in fact, Medicare estimates... Uh, Couple things. First of all, by 2026, Medicare could be insolvent, and they also estimate that uh, 5.7 trillion dollars will be spent on healthcare by 2026, which will total about 20 percent of the total GDP of the United States. Wow! So, that, thus you see the problem, because we've got the aging of the population at about 10,000 people turning 65 every day. And we have these huge and escalating healthcare costs, and we have a system that effectively is terribly inefficient, uh, terribly wasteful in terms of the dollars that are spent. Mm-hmm. Patients are not held accountable for their actions. You know, they go to the emergency department for a sore throat or a, a sniffle. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's that way out where you are, but here it's like unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have elderly parents uh, who we've been having to bring to EDs over the last year, year and a half for major problems. And they walk in. Um, I had one discussion with a nurse. I said, tell me, what, what is your estimate? Do you think about 75% of the people that are sitting here in this ED with standing room only should be here at all? And she said, no, absolutely not. They're, they're all unnecessary. There'll be bronchitis. There'll be this. There'll be that. Mm-hmm. Nothing that. So the Transforming Clinical Practice Initiative is really um, a 
almost a desperate attempt by CMS and ultimately by all payers to transform the delivery of healthcare in such a way that we can still deliver good care, but deliver it in a much better and more efficient way. And so, so optometry is so lucky to be involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think there's so much we can get into our microcosm of what we do every day. And we think, you know, when we come out and talk about billing and coding and we're worried about audits and these sorts of things, I mean, we're not even a blip. Optometry is not even a blip, my impression is, on the overarching out-of-control costs. Those things are... Uh, you know, really expensive injectable medications into the vitreous as opposed to less costly medications. Um, some of the emergency room, as you're talking about, emergency room, uh, things that are just unnecessary through that. What else are you seeing that's really making a dent in general when you go to these meetings in healthcare that's, that's a very expensive thing to, to continue to do? Well, you know, just to amplify a little bit because you're right spot on with your comments. Eye care um, is responsible for eye care, meaning all of eye care, mm -hmm. surgical down to medical, down to so-called routine refractive services, um, is responsible for 0.1%, one-tenth of 1% 1 of every dollar that's spent on, spent on healthcare in the United <laughs> States. And Eye care services delivered by optometry are responsible for one hundredth of one percent. So wait, 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 wait. Zero one. <laughs> okay, Point David. Zero one. All right. So so let's let's say that one more time because I want that to sink in for me mainly and, right. and hopefully for our listeners. So eye care in general, optometry it's and just, ophthalmology, yes, is just about one percent. Is one percent? Just a bit under one percent. Okay. And optometry, all the medical services that optometrists provide, all the, the refractive services that we provide, of that 1%, we are only 10% of that? Uh, well, you're, you're maybe better in math. I think it's, uh, <laughs> I, I can tell you that the number looks like 0.01%. Wow. So whatever that works out to it, I think it's a hundredth. Uh, okay. It's, it's very, very tiny. Of the you overall know, the cost. Of the overall yeah. cost, about sixty wow. percent. About sixty percent is uh, hospital care. Mm. About uh, ten percent is is physician services, including optometrists, and um, uh, I think a larger portion of that is is medication, pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. So we play a we have a very small uh, um, draw on the on the dollar, but doctors of all. Uh, stripes are oftentimes the first line of entry into the system. And so what we do impacts everything down the line. And that's where the increased costs come. Mm -hmm. So we have the ability to control it. Now, you know, we're, as you say, very, very tiny piece. But what's here's what the advantage optometry has right now because of the work we've done. I mean, this is the amazing thing. I was on a call early on in my, um, <clears throat> and you may have heard me tell this story, but I know perhaps if others are listening, they wouldn't mm -hmm. agree with this. Early on in my uh, career as a consultant uh, with Snepton, uh, liaison between Vision Source and Snepton, uh, they asked me to be on a call with the project director 
who basically supervises what Snepton does as a practice transformation network. She was a, um, a geriatric nurse, I believe, perhaps a geriatric nurse practitioner. And so she was on and she was very interested about this alliance, this collaboration, this partnership between optometry and Snepton. We represented about 86% of all the doctors that they were working with on practice transformation. <laughs> Wow. And, and and the rest were just a very small group of, you know, internists and so on. But optometry was a huge number. I mean, CMS is saying, this is what she said. She said, about halfway into the discussion, she said, you know, at CMS, we're amazed that this obscure profession of optometry. I mean, that was what came out of her mouth. This obscure profession of optometry has so much potential here. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to jump through the phone and say, what the heck are you talking about? Obscure, everybody knows about But I stayed very quiet and I listened to the conversation. And when it was over, it dawned on me what she meant. What she really meant was that our medical training and the scope of practice that we had was unknown to them at CMS. Remember, they pay our bills, but that's done by a billing department and a computer. They mm -hmm. don't really understand that it's optometrists that are billing for that to get, you know. What no, absolutely. So they were shocked. So what I'm saying now is that we have had, look, as independent doctors of every stripe, we are really, really challenged going forward with this huge disruptive innovation in healthcare that we see, which is coming because of these cost problems. And yet the challenge, I think, for optometry has become a fabulous opportunity because we're un, we've been an underutilized profession, particularly in urban and suburban areas, not in rural, where you know optometrists have great relationships mm -hmm. with uh, internal medicine. But you know, in a suburban or an urban area, optometrists are generally still working as refractionists in many instances. So this is opening up a huge opportunity for us. And, and that's, to me, been one of the greatest um, uh, treasures of what we've been doing is to get optometry really on the map. And I think I've kind of gotten away from what your original question was. But... No, no, this is absolutely what I was hoping to talk about. I think, you know, one of the things that I see often from the political side of all the stuff I love to do is that, you know, there's always this battle going on between really optometry and medicine in general. That's the that's the scope of practice battles. And and that is really hard when I think of getting into a room with all these other physicians. And I bet, David, that none of that stuff matters at all when you get into these meetings. Is that accurate? That's correct. That and is so accurate. It's just so mind blowing to me because, you know, on the one hand, this it's it's a world that I don't get the privilege to see. And I, I wish I did because it would probably change my mind a little bit in the sense of, you know, I'm ready for battle. When, when, when we yes. go into legislation, you just, you just can't, you can't, uh, you can't back down and you have to know your facts. And, and the reality is, is that the other side has their fronts as well. And we always say, and, you know, and, and the same thing happens. We've got great working relationships with a lot of ophthalmologists in, in our community. And, um, and they have great respect for us and we have great respect for them. But outside of that, you know, you get into the formal arena. And my whole perception is that not just ophthalmology, but because ophthalmology is a subset of medicine, that, that we're, you know, we, they're our enemies. 
And that is just not the case when we get into some of these other things. And that's really challenging for, for guys like me to wrap our minds around. So can you, can you kind of, um, you know, expand upon that a little bit? I think that's really interesting. Yeah, Chris, Chris, what I can tell you is, and, and what I've learned is that, and I've learned this from my work at, with Snepton, particularly with Dr. Ron Adler, who's also uh, on the Snepton team. Southern New England Practice Transformation Network, just in case anybody wonders what that acronym stands for. And Dr. Adler is an internal medicine specialist. Uh, he's a practicing physician, but he's also a professor um, instructing med students at UMass Medical School. And uh, he's become a friend as well. And listening to his perspective has made me understand truly what's going on. And I think it's and, and and we did a video. I, I don't, I'm not sure you were not. I think your wife was. Congratulations. You were having or just. Yes. No, I didn't get to see that video. Yeah. Thank you. Right. Thank you. So uh, great, great news for the uh, Wolf family for sure. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, we did have a video and, and Dr. Adler spoke. Uh, we presented to the administrators and Dr. Adler spoke on it. And, and what he pointed out was, and I think it's, you know, not to rephrase the whole presentation, but the colonel was, he said. That as primary care physicians, it's not, and he didn't use this language, but essentially what he was saying is, it's not that we don't like optometrists. It's that we don't know what optometrists do. We have no clue. We've gone to medical school where we've been taught that ophthalmologists are the ones that we should refer to. Mm -hmm. And that's effectively the mindset that they come away with. And then when they're in the hospital setting or you know, celebratory parties, holiday parties, whatever. Who's there? Not yep. optometry, ophthalmology. They golf with them. They do this and that with them. So it's a natural connection that they have. And so it's just obviously like all of us have a referral patterns. That's who they refer to. They just don't know what we do. And educating them makes all the difference, I think. And I mm -hmm. think this is where a lot of optometrists still don't get it. I think we have to blame a lot of this on ourselves and that there are still many optometrists that see patients, perform outstanding examinations, diagnose and treat so much, and yet don't take the time to send a nice letter to the PCP mm -hmm. of the patient. <clears throat> now, the patient wasn't referred by the PCP. The patient was our patient, but the PCP needs to know what we're doing. And this is a way we start to educate because they're bombarded with the opposite story from ophthalmologists. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, it's more ignorance than it is uh, a bias against them. Do you think that it is worthwhile to, on every single patient that you share with a, with a physician, that you're sending a letter to that, whether it's, forget diabetes, take that out of the equation, just a common patient that that you're seeing just to give them a good summary of what you've done? You know, I think there's a, a, there's a couple different arguments for that. Let me stratify and say that I think that any patient that you see that you're delivering any medical eye care to, so it could be dry eye, it could be uh, a glaucoma management, it could be just following AMD, for example, Mm -hmm. I think that those patients deserve a report back to their PCP, mm. okay, whether they were referred to you or not. I think if a 15-year-old uh, myope comes in 
I don't think the PCP, you know, they're getting barraged with reports. They don't have a lot of time. Maybe I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm saying I think we have to prioritize because the PCP is overloaded just like we are. Mm -hmm. So I think that's short and sweet. You don't have to go through. I saw Mary Jones today. Her presenting visual acuity was, you know, pinhole was all that. I think you can cut right to the chase and say, I saw Mary Jones today. I've diagnosed early macular degeneration, um, you know, a short description of what you found. Perhaps you've done an OCT. They don't know we have OCTs. By right. the way. They don't have a clue, right? They don't know that we do ultra-wide field retinal imaging. They don't have a clue. So you put down just, we have to start thinking more like marketing people. It's a yeah. shame to say, right? No, I've but, thought about this before because it's almost like, when you were very comfortable with ophthalmology groups coming into our practices and dropping off X, Y, or Z and saying, thank you, blah, 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 blah. We need to be like that. Absolutely. We PR. It's all about PR. It's about promoting yourself in terms of not you're a great optometrist, but what you're doing to serve their patient. And in the process, making them understand that, that we're not spinning dials only. We're actually doing very high-level um, testing procedures that they don't – they're going to say, what the heck is an OCT? They probably don't even know what it is, a lot of these PCPs. Mm -hmm. And so you could even – you can even say an OCT, and then you might put a, a very short even explanation in parentheses. What it is, it's similar to an MRI, but it's done with a laser instead of a, mag, a magnetic field. And, and so – I would avoid a long, I remember in my younger days, I've been <laughs> an optometrist since 1977, you know, you'd send a report three pages long with every possible thing that you did, every medication that they did. That doesn't get read. That goes into the circular file or it goes into the file, but the physician never looks at it. Yep. So, I, so now I think nowadays we have to use a very pointed and focused report. You got to Twitter it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got Just like President Trump. Get yeah. those tweets up, but hopefully a little bit better phrase. Yes, of course. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so then in the evolution of, of, you know, kind of what you're talking about with what we can do in our own practices individually with some of this communication amplification and increase with, with a lot of the patients that we're managing in our own practice, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I can tell you we're not doing it at that level. But I think even just after this conversation, it, it gives me a lot of impetus to do that. So if we take it back to the level of, of snapped in and cost, care, cost of care and quality care, let's take it to more of a regional standpoint. So all the information, and, and last week we had, I had a discussion with uh, Michael Steinkraus, and he kind of gave what snapped in has been doing and what their plans are for the future. How do we take that locally and regionally um, to now communicate, not just with CMS, but use that data to communicate with other ACOs, other health plans to make sure that they understand? Because we see the same thing locally with private payers. You know, they don't even, you know, I think I made this comment when I was talking up in New Hampshire, they don't even pay attention to us. Because they, because they think we're such a small spend, but they are forgetting the fact of all this other cost savings that we that we can potentially save them by preventing some of these other you know more costly things down the road. So how do we use that data 
to start these other conversations? Well, I think what we found, and 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 uh, Dr. Jeff Hilovsky, you probably know Jeff. He's on my uh, yep. I'm gonna yep. He's gonna be on my next uh, my yeah. next discussion. Good, great friend of mine, and, and, and an outstanding uh, uh, diplomat and promoter of our profession for sure, and a, and a, and a great clinician. Um, he's been talking to uh, and has already formed collaborations with an ACO in his region, and. And really, this is, I think this, you hit the nail on the head. It's very hard to roll any of this out um, nationally. Uh, someone way before you were born who was uh, <laughs> uh, 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 O'Neill. What was his first name, Diane? Uh, in Massachusetts. Sure, sure. Um, uh, he was friends with Reagan, yeah. Anyway, um Tip O'Neill. Yeah, oh, yeah, B, yeah, yeah. He was a B he was a BC man, you know, where I went to undergraduate. <laughs> and, he, and he was a, a really a wild, you know, liberal Massachusetts Democrat. And Ronald Reagan um was, you know, a relatively conservative uh, Republican. But they they got along very well after hours, and that was the secret of their success. They did a lot together, you know, and compromised. But Tip O'Neill used to say that politics is local. So everything that you that you're really going to do is is local. So Jeff has been working with Alidaid and at first was working with him about the diabetic collaborative initiative that we have. And um and you're familiar with that, you know, yes. getting your networks collaborating with ACOs. But he mentioned to them, just mentioned in passing that we were doing a, a, a small study with uh Snepton on avoidance of emergency department visits. And there was silence in the room when he said it. And they mm. said, you know, they kind of were half listening until they heard that. And they said, well, excuse me, tell us that. Tell me that again. He said, again, he repeated what I just said. And he said, and we've demonstrated already $100 million of savings mm. just in uh, 12 or 13 months. And like the light bulbs went on. And they said, wow, that was going to be one of the next things we looked at in um, our ACO was was reducing uh, emergency department visits. but they said, here's another thing that's really, really a problem, and that's the cost of intravitreal injections. Mm. Is there anything you can do with that? And again, that's, and you alluded to it, that's where optometry has a lot to offer to uh, ACO networks because mm -hmm. who, who do we have a direct connection to as colleagues, many times friends, and also great beneficiaries of our largesse as we <laughs> refer to them, right? right? Retina, right? Yep. So Jeff said, well, let me, let me go. And, and they kind of told him which offices were uh, using lots of the very expensive VEGF uh, medications and which were using a lot of Avastin. And so he said, well, let me just go to one or two of these practices that are using all the expensive stuff. And, and let me just see what, mm -hmm. They're thinking it. So he went in and effectively just, you know, obviously the retinologist saw him because he sends hundreds of patients to them. So they had to listen. And um, he just brought up nicely the discussion of VEGF, anti-VEGF uh, medications, Avastin, all the different ones, Lucentis. And, and he said, you know, you guys are under the microscope. You hmm. probably don't know it. And they said, what do you mean? said, well, the ACOs are looking and they're looking for providers that are getting the same outcomes, but for less cost. 
And you guys are costing a tremendous amount of money because you're not using Avastin at all. It seems. And he said, you know, what would you think about just starting to think about it when it was clinically equivalent for your patient? We're not saying, they're not saying change everybody to Avastin, but they're just saying, if you think it could do as good a job, why not try it? And they, and optometry speaking to these offices moved the mm. needle by multiple percentage points and saved tens of thousands of dollars for, for this Allidate network. And Allidate so, is, a, is an ACO. Yeah, and, and, and so they've gone out now to, they're, they're moving out to 20 states now, and they have a direct connection to optometry. They really like it. Wow. So, you can so yeah, absolutely. And and let me back up a little bit because I I think that most people have wrapped their minds around what an ACO is, but you you've had yes. much more experience. I think we're not seeing them. We are seeing some of them in in the Midwest, but right. tell me, let's just take a, a second to kind of if you what yeah, is what ACO? is it? If it's firing on all, kind of give me a scenario of an ACO that would be firing on all pistons, uh, really operating at the maximum. How do they make their money and how do they make sure that they're saving saving dollars? Yeah. Okay. Well, an accountable care organization, that's the, the term for, you know, the acronym stands for accountable care organization, um, is generally made up of a group of physicians, a large group that are usually hospital-based, owned by the hospital. So essentially, you create a network of primary care providers and specialists. They get wrapped into this um, either statewide or sometimes multi-state network with usually multiple hospitals that have all come together, either merged or cooperating amongst themselves to deliver health care. And the idea behind it, and uh, there are some very successful ones down in Texas mm -hmm. um, that have really um, been able to save a lot of money by doing a number of things. So can so let me stop you there because I've heard of one in the, in Texas and I I I think I've I've heard of all the things, but I'm I'm sure our listeners haven't heard of all the things that they're doing. So can you give me kind of an example right. of what they're doing in Texas that's making them one? What are they? How are they making money? And two, what are they doing to save that to save that money? What types of things that are sort of out of the box thinking? Right. So, so basically, the ACO, and we, we use, uh, and, and I'm blanking right now mm -hmm. at, my, at my advanced age of 67 on the name of it, but I'll probably remember it as we get going through it. But, uh, but um, you know, they, what they do is they'll say, look, we'll take care of the patient for you. Uh, let's say it's a Medicare Advantage. Okay. I'm just going to throw out numbers. These aren't exact. These probably are just, these are total hypothetical. But let's say that Medicare Advantage says, okay, for this population, age 65 to 70, we'll pay you $9,000 per patient per year for you to deliver all of the care. And, and that includes, David, that would include office visits, hospitalizations, medications, scans. Yeah, but there is, yeah, but there's some cost sharing as well. So the, the, the ACO can have risk. They'll definitely have some risk in the equation. But they have some safety nets in case they have a lot of people that get very sick. And 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 effectively, you know, I'm I'm speaking without a hundred percent understanding of how it works. So I'm just going to give you the overall yep. view, and then if you if you know if people are really interested, they'll have to do all the research on their own. But the overall view is a thirty thousand dollar view, thirty thousand mile view, or perhaps five thousand is where I am, not, not <laughs> on the ground, but you know, closer than most. Um, effectively, what will happen is 
they'll say, okay, yeah, we'll take on these patients. And so let's use diabetics, for example. Okay. So this ACO will actually provide the diabetics because they understand that a lot of their patients are, are poor. They don't have any money. So what they do is they bring them in, they assign a case manager to every patient. They actually will drive them to and from their doctor's visits. They'll pick them up at their home. They'll give them their, their supply of medication for the month. They'll send a caseworker into the home to make sure that the patient is taking the meds. It's really hands-on. It's, so it's, it, big, one of the biggest problems with, with healthcare is that patients don't have skin in the mm-hmm. game. And unfortunately, a lot of them don't understand how things work. Right? We know that just from treating mm-hmm. glaucoma. Right? I mean, compliance is poor. So it's about getting, making the patient a partner in the process. So for the diabetic, you essentially just hold them by the hand and keep their A1C under control by basically assigning someone to them. So maybe there's one caseworker for 100 diabetics. And that caseworker just makes the rounds, makes sure they have their meds and so forth. That's one example of how granular the, the supervision can get. Now, interestingly, I went to a, a, um, a, a what, what shall I call it, an educational mm-hmm. seminar or a whatever here in New Hampshire by the uh, local Dartmouth-Hitchcock group and a couple of insurance companies. And they were talking about, they had brought in a number of speakers, and they were talking about in Britain what they do as part of their national um, health service because uh, the U.S., one of the things when I said earlier that we have a $3.5 trillion almost spend in 2017 on health care, we're not even in the top 10 for um, uh, child um, uh, infant mortality, mm-hmm. believe it or not. So we, we don't go to do a good job in this country with a lot of what we spend tremendous amounts of money on. So in Britain, what they do, and I wouldn't be surprised if some ACOs are doing this now in the U.S., is that when a w- woman gets pregnant in Britain, they immediately get assigned to a nurse who effectively visits them, goes into their home, takes their cigarettes away, makes sure that they check their blood pressure, call them if they don't visit them, Get early on prenatal care, and if there's the slightest smell of something going wrong, get them treated. So that makes for much better pregnancies and much better outcomes when the children are born. So, you know, it it really gets down to managing patients because they are the biggest drivers of the healthcare costs. Yeah. Because they make the most demands, they have poor habits in terms of their diets, in terms of their exercise. Lower socioeconomic groups are sicker because they can't afford the medication. They can't afford the doctor's visits. It's really a vicious circle. So the idea of the ACO to circle back is to manage populations. It's called population health management. And that's the job of the ACO, to try to basically think out of the box and say, this isn't working. You know, we've been for too long waiting for the patient to get really sick Mm -hmm. and then come in for their care when it's very expensive. We've got to flip that over. We've got to work to keep people healthy and keep them out of the hospital because the hospital is responsible for 60% or more of every dollar spent. Well, it's the idea of, of, sorry to interrupt, but it's the idea of, have you ever read the book Better Next Year? 
so my dad uh, must have been seven or eight years ago. He read this book, and so I read it. And it's the idea that you know most of us in the United States, we sort of think that we have to have this precipitous decline from when we're in our late 30s to early 40s, and then you just gradually sort of decline in your health and your mental state and your your physique and all that kind of stuff goes down and down and down. And um, but but his his theory with his physician is that, you know, our bodies can continue to build and build and build. You know, if we're working out and exercising, you know, you can always build. And then there's this time, you know, maybe 85 years old and boom, you're going to have this precipitous decline quickly, right? Or this this decline that just rapidly falls off. It's going to happen to us at some point, whether it's our brain or our bodies, but it's going to give out as opposed to this really slow. So, so the point I'm trying to make is that there's this idea of just staying healthy, as healthy as you possibly can, but you don't have to have this very slow decline. It can be a very level for many, many years, you know, 50 years of, of basically staying exactly as you are. You can snow ski, you can, you know, wakeboard, whatever you want to do. You know, obviously some of us are going to get a an aneurysm and that's it, right? You know, ho- hopefully that doesn't happen and, th- and then and that's it. But you can't avoid those things. But what you can avoid is what you're saying is keeping the keeping people oh, yeah. healthy. And, you know, so I always think about that when I think of like my dad, for example, and you know, my dad, well, um, you know, he, he's a, he's a monster. I don't know if I've ever met anybody as strong as he is, um, you know, mentally and physically. And, uh, and yet he, it's because he's, he's thought about this stuff for a long time, but, but that's sort of what healthcare needs to do as well is continue to say, I can be better next year. We can work, we can work to make you healthier as opposed yeah, to that's exactly right. And I was looking for the word the symposium uh, yes. that I that I attended uh, up in uh, in Concord, New Hampshire. That one of the speakers that was uh, basically a point that he was trying to drive home that the job of medicine now is not necessarily to extend life expectancy because we we think right now there's only so far you can extend life, mm-hmm. uh, but to make people have a much better quality of life as they age so that they don't uh, decline in the manner that you described. But basically we manage their chronic illnesses. We keep them engaged in their health care and in their, in their own care of their own bodies. And so they have a very good uh, period in their final years. And then of course, time does end for all of us. And, and so that extends therefore to the ACO and starting with people who are very young, and trying to create good habits with them early on so that the cost of their health care is reduced over time. And we have, for example, the obesity epidemic. It's, it truly is an epidemic. And if you go to the mall mm. and you walk around, uh, you see so many children or young teens who are overweight. Uh, you know, I, I say to my wife sometimes when we go to the beach, I say, and then she's 67. <laughs> I say, you know, you're in better shape than some of these 18-year-olds. And, you know, it's a shame. But, you know, we're old. We're 67. And we spent all of our time as young children outside running around. And just we didn't have any computers. We had Tonka trucks and a Mm -hmm. punch ball, you know, and a baseball. So we were very active. We would walk two or three miles to school. There was nothing you know, I would carry my school school bag home from parochial school two and a half miles on a November day with snow flying, and I'd it'd be twenty mm-hmm. degrees. And my mother couldn't drive in those days. But you know, things have changed in society, and we can see that a lot of these illnesses are increasing. So again, kind of driving the prescript the uh, the conversation back to 
what's happening in healthcare and where optometry yes, can exactly. really be is is in the is in the area of preventive medicine. And essentially we've concentrated on diabetes because we know statistically that A1C control, keeping those numbers between six and seven, is critical. And that once you begin to go over seven and stay at that on a chronic basis or eight or nine, the incidence of diabetic retinopathy and all these mm-hmm. other complications. Remember diabetic retinopathy is microvascular disease, but it's only an indicator of what's going on throughout the body. We know that as as ODs, right? So if we can prevent that by helping the physician, working in collaboration with the PCP to be the second voice to the patient, not the doctor that's always yakking to them about taking medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to do this, you got to do that. But when they come into us as an eye doctor, they don't expect us to kind of coax them to do something that's not what they think is in our our wheelhouse, right? So when we start to say to them, you know, Mrs. Jones, you know, I see your A1C was 7.5. The doctor says, oh, yeah, you told me I got to get this down. And then we spend just a minute to explain why that's so important. That's quite effective. In fact, I read a study about a year and a half ago about smoking cessation. And they did a study, and they said that when the eye doctor told the patient to stop smoking, in addition to the PCP, it was a much greater effect than the PCP telling just the patient mm. alone. So it's because it's this person that they don't see as like the primary care doctor. They see us as very much a specialist in a small area. If we're telling them to do something that they're hearing over and over again from the PCP, the light goes on and they say, hmm. Maybe there really is something. Mm-hmm. So what other, what other, um, so diabetes is the one that gets a lot of play, but what other conditions do you foresee? You know, macular degeneration obviously is another one. Besides diabetes and macular degeneration, what others are we going to be able to bend the cost curve down where I'm almost thinking, you know, I, I tend to think, and I, I, I can't prove this for sure, but I tend to think that we're a more cost-effective provider in general than many ophthalmologists, many general ophthalmologists. And I, so in any case, what other ways can we bend the cost curve? So maybe it's not, maybe it's not ophthalmology that we're really bending the cost curve. Maybe it is emergency rooms, um, quality of life sorts of things. But what are you seeing? Well, I think that, you know, you, you do bring up an important point and I don't think we should just pass over it. And you know, I, I'm going to get a little politically incorrect for a moment. About no, great. No, let's do it. Optometry and ophthalmology. And I'll say that I see that the the situation that we face now in terms of escalation of cost and the danger of the U.S. not be able, being able to care for the population because of the lack of funds or having to charge fees in terms of insurance coverage, Medicare, that people just couldn't afford. I see that we're going to be forced into a corner in this country and having to actually start to do meaningful things to reduce costs and become something more cost effective. And that's where optometry shines. I think back to when I first started in practice in 1977. I couldn't even put a drop in the eye to dilate the eye or um, uh, to even anesthetize it. I had to use air pump. I mean, it was unbelievable, right? So now, yeah. but... When I think of it, those days, 
<clears throat> medicine was practiced very differently. And I think it's the way that we're going to possibly circle back to. And that's utilizing the skills of the primary care provider in a much bigger way again and avoiding the use of specialists only as needed, for example, for surgery. So let's use optometry as an example. So mm -hmm. what I found towards the end of my career, and I worked with a number of ophthalmology practices, but I had one in particular that I worked with. What I found was that in my earlier days, when it was just a one ophthalmology practice, and I don't know if you ever see this in your ear, but I'm just going to tell you what I've seen. Um, mm -hmm. When I would see a patient, uh, maybe by then I had diagnostics, so I could dilate, I could actually know what I was looking at. I would see the patient and I would refer it to the ophthalmologist and say, you know, I see this, that uh, patient has, you know, drusen in the macula, they have uh, lattice degeneration superior, they have a cataract, three plus NS and two plus posterior subcapsular. So I'm referring to them to you for cataract extraction. So guess what happened? Ophthalmologist saw them. Yep, Dave, I see these three things. Took the cataract out and sent them back, right? Mm -hmm. Now we go ahead, let's say 25 years. Now this practice has five ophthalmologists. Mm -hmm. You probably know where I'm going with mm -hmm. it, right? Yep. So they have a retina specialist. They have a cornea specialist. They have a glaucoma specialist. They have every specialist, ocular plastics. So I refer the same patient over to that practice with the same letter. And here's what was happening. <laughs> patient would, before they could have the cataract extraction, they had to see the retina specialist. Mm -hmm. And then they saw some corneal guttata. So the cornea specialist had to certify that they could have the surgery. And, you know, maybe the cup looked a little suspicious. So that um, surgical procedure and that went from, you know, 600 to $2,000 with every test. Mm -hmm. It's the golden, uh, whatever you want to call it, right? <laughs> so, yep. so, so I think that, you know, if payers look at that as with where we are now as optometrists and what we're capable of doing and the instrumentation that we have at our command, we don't need to refer a lot to retina anymore because we have our OCTs. Yep. We don't need to refer for many conditions because we can manage them now ourselves. And I think optometrists are generally very prudent in their approach to patients in terms of only performing necessary tests for the most part and charging a reasonable amount. You know, the Medicare mm -hmm. is slightly above. So that alone is a great way to save money. And then if we can get um, PCPs and, and just now, the end of this week, starting to talk to Snepton about developing something where we can start to now talk to PCPs about ED avoidance because they, yeah. they're among the worst. How often do people call the PCP and if it's after hours, they tell them to go to the emergency department? Oh, yeah, that's that's the default. That's I mean, the default, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. So, I mean, that's a huge, huge problem. So we're talking about now taking... And it's only a kernel. I don't know if it's going to develop. We're having a conference call tomorrow. I just kind of thought of the idea. And mm -hmm. we're going to talk about, we in optometry have done the ED avoidance initiative. We've come up and developed, I don't know if you have that poster in your office about ED avoidance. Mm -hmm. It's a very nice yes. color picture. It's an educational piece for your patients and your staff and reminds you to mention it to them for 10 seconds at the end. 
Mrs. Jones, thanks for coming in today. And remember that if you have any eye condition, call us first. We can we can take care of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so now what we want to do is see if we can now start to work with the ACOs in the PCP community and see if we can come up with similar marketing for the air office and then dovetail it with a referral list of optometrists in their their area that they could refer to and maybe even pair it up with in an ACO with a central call-in line so that every patient before they go, go to the ED for, you know, not a heart attack symptom, but for most regular things, a cough, a cold, right. an eye problem, they call the, um, the uh, central line, get an RN, a trained person on the other end, Triage. triage it and say, oh, by the okay, so do you have an eye doctor? We have one on call tonight, Dr. Chris Wolf. So yeah. essentially go full circle and pull this back to what we used to do more of in the earlier days. Now we have hospitalists, everything is segmented, and that's why you see the healthcare costs going up so quickly. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I there's a there's a practice we don't refer to in town, but that does that exact same thing that you're talking about is is, you know, they've they're, they see the cornea guy for their dry eye, the glaucoma guy for their glaucoma, you know, the, the cataract surgeon for their cataract and, uh, you know, the retina guy for their lattice. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's amazing. And, and well, when you, so this, this discussion that you're having tomorrow with Snepton, is this going to be, is going to start out locally on the East coast first? And you think it's going to be able to spread to the rest of vision, well, I, vision source network? I think we're really jumping the gun on this. I, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, it's okay. I know it may not yeah. happen, but, um, I, I, well, I guess I don't know where it's going to go. It's right now. It's like the first discussion. And, um, I think that we need to talk about it. And what I need to know is I'm going to say to him because David Polikoff, this, uh, internal medicine specialist mm-hmm. that I mentioned earlier on, who's really in the know. He really has great connections with CMS and he really knows what's happening in the world of healthcare. I'm going to say, David, you know, aren't they already doing this? Because they seem at Snepton to be really interested in this idea. And I'm, I'm, I will be amazed if it's not already being done. But if it isn't, mm-hmm. we want to start the process. If it is, we'd like to get involved and start to refine the process. And I, the way I like to typically do it is, is a pilot first, like a beta test, mm-hmm. right? So maybe we start with a small network like the UMass Medical, where the Vision Source Network, the doctors in New Ham- in Massachusetts already have collaborative, um, have a collaboration on the diabetic thing with them. Maybe we start to see, can okay, now we have the marketing. Can we see what we can do about ED avoidance? So we see how it works mm-hmm. out and then start to spread it. I see this taking time. It's Everything's going to take time, but whether or not it does, I think it's a noble effort that we would make if we can make a dent in, in costs. And even it'll be small for eye care, but this can be generalized to every area eventually because people are yeah. going for migraine headaches. They're going for so many things uh, that are unnecessary. It's, yeah, I mean, the, the the day, at least in metropolitan areas, the day of being able to have a relationship with your physician and call them up and meet them at their office that's gone. Right. I mean, we might be the only profession that does that anymore, Correct. honestly, or one of the very few. And so, um, so it's really interesting to me when I think about some things is that Perry Lopez, I was, I was reading a, uh, an update that he, he wrote this just this week. And he said that in the next, he made a reference that in the next five years or maybe 10 years, 
the medical care of baby boomers for their eyes is going to increase by 30%. Yes, that's correct. And 3% is what the refractive care is going to increase. Yes, exactly. And that would And so I, so all the things that we're talking about tonight um have me, you know, I think of like okay, there's all these things that we could do. We could do this, we could do this, we could do this. And yet I wonder it just it, it has to take the right person who has the right skill set and the right amount of time to actually start doing some of these things. And honestly, I, I just wonder if, and I'm sort of asking a question, if so many of us are doing so well that we're not going to try to do some of these other things to make some of these changes like you're talking about by me- having these meetings until it's it's later. What What's your sense of that? You know, I am concerned because Frankly, um, you know, working on the Snepton has been rewarding, but it's also been quite frustrating because mm. I have been disappointed by the the um, the reaction, the engagement of what I consider to be some of the most uh, qualified and competent doctors of optometry in America, and that's Vision Switch Doctors. And yet it's really been like pulling teeth to get them to mm-hmm. to engage in the ED avoidance, for example. Very poor reporting. Now that we have financial incentives, everybody wants to jump on the bandwagon. Mm-hmm. But but the point that I've tried <laughs> to make is that, you know, that's nothing. The three thousand yeah. dollars that you're gonna get for this effort, you should have been thinking a year ago about what this means to our survival as a profession, because we're laying the groundwork like probably your dad did and I did many years ago mm-hmm. for the TPA drive. Where would we be today if we didn't have TPAs? Because this commoditization of many things of what we're doing right now, right? Contact lens online, mm-hmm. spectacles yeah. online, refraction is probably going to be better eventually by a machine than, than by us. Uh, and, you know, for, for 90%, not everybody will still need to refine and work with people who have four ears and, you know, so on and so forth. And some of the people that are really into visual training and, and all that stuff are going to disagree with me. Mm-hmm. There'll be a groundswell. But let's face it, you know, a lot of what we do in terms of refraction can 95% of the people can be replaced. So what are we going to do in spite in, in place of that? And and that's med- the medical model. And so, yeah, it's important to concentrate on the um, profit of your optical department. While, while we still have it. And I think with Vision Source, we've got an edge over many. Thank mm-hmm. God, right? I mean, we've got, mm-hmm. I don't know how many offices that aren't Vision Source are going to actually stay above water with what I see um, coming. But essentially, yeah. um, we have to think forward. And that's the problem. You hit the nail on the head. Most optometrists aren't thinking past tomorrow. Some are thinking three months from now. Some are thinking a year from now. Very few are thinking further along than that. That is the beauty of Vision Source because you have individuals like Paul Williams, like uh, Jim Greenwood, and and some of us who are on the team who are actually Mm -hmm. looking at the future and saying, hey, guys and gals, this is what we have to be doing. This is where we have to be headed. If you're just concentrating on these little issues, you can't see the forest through the trees. You're going to be caught with your pants down in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And what are you going to do then? So it is a worry, but I think that vision source 
has really a brain trust that no other group has. And, and you know, I've been in Vision Source since 2005 as administrator. Your dad's been along as well. So mm-hmm. I think we both see what Vision Source can do for our members. And, you know, you asked me to be on the podcast to talk about other things. I'm not here to pitch Vision Source. No, no, no. The, no but I really I mean, This is where it. our discussion came. Yeah, I really do believe it. As a, as a doctor who's, who's practiced since 77, and has seen so much change. Remember, when I first started in practice, I couldn't see a Medicare patient because Medicare wouldn't pay me. It was not until 1985 that optometrists were recognized as physicians on Medicare. Mm -hmm. Before that, I never saw anybody over 65. Mm -hmm. So think about that for a minute. Now we passed TPA legislation. Some states are getting even more advanced scope of practice. That's what's going to keep optometry vital as we go forward. I do not see, I hate to be the harbinger of bad news, but I do not see the optical in most patient, most optometrist practices over time being the primary source of income. Mm-hmm. I see the you professional know, services as being the primary source. I totally, I totally agree with that. I think at this point, you know, I still am not ready to abdicate I've said this before, but abdicate those services to somebody else. And I, because I, I still think we do it better. We can counsel patients. We can listen to what they're coming in with and we can have a specific recommendation for what those numbers need to do. But um, you, you've, you're absolutely right. The, the challenge I was talking to um, one of my good friends, Drew Bateman, who practices in Lincoln. And um, he, he made the comment after listening to uh, the discussion I had with uh, Michael Steinkraus, he made the comment that, you know, he feels like it's this, um, I, I'm going to describe it not nearly as well as he did, but sort of this merry-go-round of one of the reasons that we're, that we have been effective, even though you, you talk about, you know, it's like pulling teeth to get um, some people to kind of submit data. It's way easier to do through our vision source network than to do outside of the vision source network. Absolutely. And and so one of the things that's very attractive to us through from Snepton, from Michael's point of view, was that we are a collective network and we do tend to spend more time with patients. And, and Drew's comment, which I hadn't really thought about before, but one of the reasons that we can do that still is because we have a revenue stream through, through the optical side of our practices. And, um, and so I'm, I'm starting to wonder, okay, well, what, what does happen? Can we spend the time, you know, or are we just going to purely be about maximizing as many patients as we can get through our practices? And if that optical side goes away, so I'm not sure that that I have an answer for that. Um, but what's your sense? I think that first of all, I, I agree hundred percent. I'm not in any way saying, you know, give up on your optical. I think this is a trend that will occur over time, and a lot of it is pushed by the younger generation. I guess the millennials. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know all the different categories, but the ones that are used <laughs> to the ones that are like my kids. You know, my son is an orthodontist; he's almost forty. I have a daughter who's an optometrist who's thirty-six, thirty-seven, and my youngest boy's mm-hmm. a CPA at thirty or thirty-one. And you know, they do just about everything online, right? But what they yep. but they won't do online. I mean, they would buy glasses on. They weren't, didn't have relatives, you know, who were <laughs> optometrists because that's just the way they're used to doing things, right? Yeah. But, but we still do it better. You're right. And there'll always be people for the next 10, 15, 20 years who will value that service. But what they do 
value is a personal relationship with a doctor for mm -hmm. their care, although they may not want to buy the glasses from you. That's the point I'm trying to mm -hmm. make, right? So yep. you're going to capture yep. that, but I think the capture is going to go down with time. I think it's just the way it's going to be. However, I will tell you that I spent the last eight years of my career, uh, eight to 10 years, uh, I had a, a practice that started with myself and then eventually grew to four dogs. And mm -hmm. I spent basically the last eight to 10 years doing geriatric eye care. And I had many a day where I only prescribed maybe one pair of glasses, some days none. It was all medical care. And mm -hmm. I can tell you, and by the way, people say, oh, there's not enough medical care to go around. I beg your, I beg your pardon. Medical care yeah. isn't eye, isn't pink eye. It's managing macular degeneration. It's managing dry eye. It's managing all of these chronic conditions, which are only going to grow because the population is aging. Huge aging, Absolutely. right? So yep. I often thought about it and I said, you know, if I, I looked at what I would generate in a day in OCTs, visual field, office visits, you know, you name it. And, and I was a slow producer. You know, I, I, as I got older and the EMR came on, I had to really cut back on the number of patients I saw. <laughs> um, but there's ways around that. If I had been going to practice for much longer, I would have gotten a scribe. I would have had them put all the information in. I would have been much more of a data analyzer than a data collector. So effectively, just analyzing what I was doing, I said, if I didn't have the optical, and I'm not saying this is what you should do, but in the yep. end, if this is how it comes out, if I didn't have the optical, I could have much fewer staff. I could have really a smaller office, and I could make probably more money just doing medical up top because there's no cost mm -hmm. of goods associated with it. Mm -hmm. So nobody should be afraid of what's coming. I think they need to prepare for what's coming, for the what I think is the absolute evolution of where optometry is going to go. Now, we may end up with two classes of optometrists at the end of the day. Because mm -hmm. I don't necessarily see um, corporate optometry or commercial optometry going away. But I think that we may have a segment of optometrists who just like to refract. And they may use lots of high-tech instrumentation to do it in their office so that they essentially get most of it done. They act as screeners. You know, they basically touch up the prescription. Mm -hmm. They ask, act as a diagnostician. And they essentially refer the treatment stuff out to the rest of us who want to treat it. And so there may be two different types of optometrists down the road, all trained the same. I'm not saying one different from the yep. other, just different modalities. It's like medicine. You know, you have some doctors that go into hair transplants, right? <laughs> you know, I right. mean, they advertise all over the radio or whatever, <laughs> laser to make your skin look better. And then you have others that really want to get into real, real medicine. And so that could yep. be the way it plays out down the road. But we have to prepare for that. And I think Vision Source is doing that now. And I think that we will survive and thrive because we have tremendous um, backing. We have a huge organization that's kind of like I call them the rich uncle, Essilor. And mm -hmm. they're going to try to do everything they can to protect our optical side, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't mm -hmm. see that it'll ever totally go away. But they also want us to be successful. So I think we have the better, better, best chance of anybody of doing it as long as we keep a mind looking towards the future, not backwards and forwards. Yeah. Well, I think the, the most, what I was hoping to get from these types of discussions, David, is exactly what we've talked about is I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, people will sit down and take the time to, 
to continue to listen to these because I do think it helps us understand what's going on behind the scenes in so many of these other areas that we just don't see on a day-to-day basis when we're seeing patients in our practices and trying to run our practices. And so, uh, but I know that that people have a lot of time to drive to and from their offices and, uh, and some of them can absorb this information while they do that. And so uh, I want to thank you for being on. I think there's probably, I hope you're open to, if I reach out to you again, we can carry on this discussion further, but I want to be respectful of your time. Um, and uh, and I really do appreciate the amount of time that you took to to dive into this. This is exactly what I was, I was hoping to discuss. And um, it was wonderful. I, I really learned a ton. Well, Chris, I've had a passion for optometry since I <clears throat> graduated. I, I actually left Massachusetts. Uh, which I was born and raised mm. there because I said to my wife, Diane, we married uh, when I was graduating from Boston College and she worked as a registered nurse uh, while I was in optometry school for four years. And I and when time came to graduate, I, she said, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm leaving for New Hampshire because we love New Hampshire, <laughs> the next state over a more rural state. I said, there's great opportunity for optometry. And her parents had a, a summer home up here and we came up a lot. And, and I said, but the main reason is because Massachusetts will likely be the last state in the country. I said, in fact, I'm going to go on the line and, and Diane, wow. will, Diane will actually back me on this because I've told this story many times. I said, Massachusetts will be the last state in the country to get the type of privileges I want to have earlier in my career. Wow. And I was right Fortuitous. because they do not yet have glaucoma. So yeah. I've had a passion for optometry all my career. I've been very much involved in the legislature and writing the laws, negotiating, testifying, because I believe truly when I was in at Boston College, I was a pre-med psych major, but I was really going to be a clinical psychologist. That's what I had hoped for. And that's the story for another call. But essentially, I became an optometrist. You sort of are probably as an optometrist. Yeah, well, actually, absolutely. You do use psychology every day. But and I and I told my patients sometimes that it was I was very happy after I had met them that I had taken many courses <laughs> in psychology as a joke you might yeah. say but I kept them in patients nonetheless they had a little chuckle about it <laughs> but anyway uh, the point I was making was that when I investigated optometry back then I said this is a profession that has so much potential that is not we haven't even scratched the surface at the time mm-hmm. there were a couple states Rhode Island had passed. Uh, legislation allowing optometrists to use diagnostics. I think North Carolina was doing diagnostic and treatment. That was it. And I said, boy, I said, optometry, that's the profession of the future. I said, that's Mm -hmm. where I want to be. And so I worked very hard as so many, your dad and so many others in our generation, to push the profession forward, to get us where we are today, as truly on the cusp of being the recognition primary provider of eye care not eye class doctor but eye doctor it's true in rural areas we're not there yet in suburban or particularly urban but everything that i've tried to do during my career has been to push us in that direction and i'm so happy to see the direction that we've you know the progress we've made the direction that we're going and i think that we have so much ahead of us in the future as optometrists with what we see in terms of the aging population the demands that are going to be made for eye care and what we can now do. So I think one thing I'd like to leave on is a very positive note. My daughter's an OD. You know, I I say all the time to my wife, I wish I was starting again now Hmm. at this point in time as an optometrist, as a (laughs) 30-year-old. 
because what we have for instrumentation and what potential we have is unbelievable compared to what I started with in 77. So uh, yeah. that's, you know, that's kind of the little pep talk to anybody that's listening. Grab the opportunity and forge ahead because, you know, if you just do what we do best, we can be recognized for everything that we have a potential for. And it's already started, but we have more to go and we will get there. Just have to get everybody on the same page. And I'll be happy to come back anytime to speak more about optometry and answer any questions you have. Awesome. Thanks, David. And uh, thanks for everything you've done so that we can practice the way we practice. We really appreciate it. 